Dis. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. Drei. Dwa. One. Welcome to ESA Explores, coming to you not quite from Mission Control, but instead from the home offices of some of the people working to keep Europe's space explorers flying. After a brief shutdown of science instruments and a period in safe standby, ESA's planetary missions are now getting back to what they do best, gathering science data from around the solar system. I'm Rosa Jesse, and I spoke to Paolo Ferry, head of mission operations at Europe's Mission Control Center in Darmstadt, Germany, referred to as ESOC, and Marcus Kislapatig, head of science and operations at the agency's ESAC Astronomy Center near Madrid in Spain. In today's episode, Paolo and Marcus talk about why science instruments were last week turned off for four crucial missions, and why they're now going back on and what it's like to make key decisions about the safety of their workforce and Europe's fleet of space explorers in light of a global pandemic. Uh, my name is Paolo Ferri. Uh, my job title is Head of the Mission Operations Department in ESOC in Darmstadt. Um, the job is uh, managing a, a large group of people who are in charge of flying the missions uh, of ESA. Um, it's the teams that are in contact with the spacecraft and tell the spacecraft what to do and make sure that the data are received. We manage also the, the ground segment, which is the ground stations, which are all around the world and allow us to be in contact with the spacecraft. Currently, I'm in my place at home, uh, a few kilometers away from the center, and uh, just a few people on my team are in ESOC and uh, keep, the, keep the ball rolling. So my name is Markus Gislapatik. I'm the head of the Science and Operations Department. So the um, group that actually manages uh, the, the operations um, during the science missions of, of ESA. Uh, so essentially, Paolo is, is running the, the spacecrafts for us. And uh, our job is actually to get the science out of these missions. We have uh, dozens of missions. The team is mostly in Madrid at the European Space Astronomy Center. So one of the centers of, of ESA. But uh, we also have uh, quite large groups at the um, European Space Technology Center, so in uh, in Holland, the other center of ESA, and also uh, groups wherever we share missions with partners. So a large group in Baltimore, for example, at the Space Telescope Science Institute, because we're also uh, running Hubble with these people. Um, so um, today, and since a couple of weeks, I'm sitting in a small home office, which I checked is uh, one square meter smaller than the legal size of a prison jail in Spain. Um, <laughs> and uh, we are uh, running, uh, running the missions from here. And I guess you both know each other, you work together? Uh, yes, yes, we do. We work together. They, they keep us separate to avoid problems and it works quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then we visit each other, but not too often. <laughs> So last week we announced that four of ESA's missions would be put into a temporary safe standby and the science instruments would be turned off. And that was for two Martian orbiters, so Mars Express and the Mars Trace Gas Orbiter, and Cluster, the four spacecraft in orbit around Earth, and Solar Orbiter, our most recently launched spacecraft on its way to the Sun. Can you explain a bit about why the decision was made to put these missions into standby, and why these missions in particular? 
Uh, yes, it was uh, for these missions. In fact, uh, uh, say uh, unfortunate coincidence. There was one case of uh, infection of COVID nineteen in Isok. Um, this person, uh, who by the way is fine, is doing well, and that's the most important thing. But this person, of course, had to be put uh, went home, and we had to put about twenty people in quarantine who had been in the previous week. In fact, he had been only two days in the previous week in Isok. Uh, but in those two days, he met uh, about 20 people. And these people uh, were mainly affecting the operations of these particular missions. So this was one of the main reasons. Uh, so um, the, the absence of these people affected directly these operations. But we could have continued those um, but we were afraid that one of these 20 people would also become uh, infected, which would have made a cascade of other quarantine. And this would have brought us suddenly in a very dangerous situation for the mission. So we decided preventively to suspend these operations until this, uh, this potential quarantine cascade would uh, disappear. And uh, uh, this was a preventive measure because we were very close to a very high risk of having to suddenly interrupt the operations and then our spacecraft would not have been safe. Yeah, so it's a coincidence that it was these planetary missions and not, for example, Earth observation. This person, for some reason, doesn't like to hang out with Earth observation operators. <laughs> yes, well, actually, yeah, it, it was a coincidence, but if you want... Uh, 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 it's not completely uh, unlikely because uh, these type of missions, the interplanetary, are the ones that require uh, most personnel. So in, in a way, um, it's uh, much more likely that if you have uh, an infection case that uh, uh, the, these missions are affected because there is more people present in ESOC for these missions normally than it is for Earth observation missions. Yeah, we have indeed actually uh, re two broad categories of missions. We have the ones which we just send above the atmosphere. Um, so the atmosphere blocks all the light except the optical light. So there are the missions which are what we call astrophysics missions, and they just need to orbit the Earth and, and look, uh, look at the universe from there. The interplanetary missions, um, or the planetary missions, solar missions, are the ones which really fly through the solar system. So you can imagine it takes a larger team to actually usually um, take care of these. Uh, and that's the bigger teams that Paolo is referring to. So we could actually continue science operations with most of our astrophysics missions, the ones which just uh, stupidly orbit the Earth in a sense. <laughs> but the more complicated ones flying through the solar system, these are the ones where, where you need uh, larger teams to really um, get them under control. The advantage of the interplanetary missions is that they are designed uh, to stay in, in a safe configuration, let me put it this way. It's still their normal mode of operation. But it's a, it's a robust mode. And uh, in this safe configuration, um, they can survive for weeks, even without ground contact. And this is, in fact, what we've done. Um, these missions, sometimes when they are uh, flying in the, in the solar system, they happen to go behind the sun, as seen from the Earth. And uh, in those uh, two, three weeks, we are used to lose the contact with the spacecraft. And that's why they are designed to survive those periods. So we put them in that safe configuration which uh, allows us uh, to be very resilient to potential uh, lack of contact over long times. Nevertheless, we keep contact them. Yeah, It's just uh, that uh, uh, it's a much more robust mode of operation. And so, Marcus, these particular spacecraft that were put into safe standby, what kind of scientific data were they gathering? 
and what was it that we potentially missed in the brief period that they were off? Um, so the, the ones you mentioned uh, were the two Mars orbiters, so uh, two of the missions that currently are, are studying Mars. And um, the other one um, was Cluster, which is closer to Earth and is monitoring the uh, the storms at, uh, of the sun and, and what effect it has on our upper atmosphere or actually magnetosphere and, and beyond the magnetosphere. And then finally, solar orbiter. So I think um, uh, maybe let me talk about solar orbiter for a second, because that's the mission that we had just launched and uh, it's on its way to the sun. And we were just starting to uh, what we call commission it, that is to actually um, really start to check all the whether all the instruments work on board, with all the functions work on board, etc. And so we had to interrupt that, which, um, of course, there's a very large team involved there. And uh, so for us, it was uh, not an easy decision to um, postpone these activities. Uh, but uh, they've restarted, so we're all happy and everything went well, so that's good. On the Mars, the, the two Mars uh, orbiters, of course, our, our heart bleeds every time uh, we can do science with the with these missions. Um, uh, the Our department is really responsible for the scientific output of all these fantastic spacecraft, and uh, that's what we want to maximize, really, the science for... Uh, for our researchers, but also for, for humankind. And so every time we, we can't get science uh, done, um, we really uh, we really sit there and uh, and feel very depressed. Um, now, Mars, um, when it's only a week, there are not singular events on Mars, which, which we might have missed. Uh, Mars year is two years long, so um, we like to actually trace the seasons on Mars, etc. But uh, this uh, would have failed if, if we had had a shutdown for, for many weeks. Okay, So we hope that this is gonna gonna happen I mean, we, we know that we're not out of the crisis here um so we hope that interruptions might be week long so we we're uh, incredibly grateful to to paulo's team that actually they're they're so dedicated uh, they have a slightly harder job than than we do we we can mostly work off-site now mm-hmm. they still have to actually come in because they have this secured link to the spacecraft that we don't have we only pass the commands to their team and they, they link it up um and so for these type of interruptions, uh, the, the two mass orbiters, uh, I think we cried, but but we can afford it in a sense. Hopefully no little green men were waving at Mars Express in that week. Um, no, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, Paolo, it was, I guess it was ultimately your decision to turn off the science instruments. How did you feel when, when you made the decision? Yeah, let, let's put it this way. Yes, we we made the decision, but of course we made it uh, um, jointly with with our science directorate uh, because, of course, we don't want to do anything that uh, they consider uh, um, yeah wrong for the missions. Uh, like Marcus said correctly, your heart aches. Yeah, uh, but mm-hmm. I have to say. Um, this is not uh, an exceptional case. I mean, when one of these uh, satellites has problems, uh, maybe goes into a safe mode, what I mentioned before, which is the sort of emergency mode, then it takes anyway a week before you restart. If you're lucky, it takes a week before you restart science operations. They are suspended because there's a problem with the spacecraft. Uh, Mars Express, for example, has been in orbit for... uh, uh, what 16 years uh, almost well almost well this year would become 17 years in flight and uh, um, we've had many of these cases more than 20 so it's happened already in the past that we were forced to stop science and this time stopping it uh, uh, for issues related to health of the ground people of course is unique but uh, to be honest uh, you feel even more 
compelled to do that uh, rather than uh, saving a machine. So it, it was not new to us. There's been a period in the past where uh, in 2011, Mars Express had a serious problem on board and uh, we spent six months um, redesigning completely our way of operation. And these six months, the science was very limited. But mm-hmm. thanks to that, we saved the mission. Uh, remember, the mission was uh, designed uh, for a Martian year with a possible extension of another Martian year, which is in total about four years of the Earth. And it's flying since uh, more than 16 years. So you have to you have to consider that these cases of suspension occur, whether you want it or not. And uh, by doing it right, you can then recover by extending the life of the mission. And I think what was exceptional here is that we really had to um, interrupt the science for a, a number of missions, not just one at a time. Because as Paolo said, one at a time, we sometimes use two technical problems. So here, deciding that for many missions, that was, I think, the, the exceptional uh, circumstances. Um, but as Paolo said, I mean, this is, uh, it was about, you know, the health of our people. And, and for us, that's a no-brainer. Okay, so that's uh, uh, one of the highest priorities um, to actually uh, put the people first. And, uh, and then these decisions are relatively simple to make, even if they are, if they are difficult, uh, in the sense that they, they, they hurt you, but they're simple to make because you know it's the right thing to do. Well, it does seem like it was the right decision. Um, instruments are now being turned back on, and thankfully the single case that was found doesn't seem to have spread anywhere else. So how about chances of future infections or shutdowns? Yeah, well... Um... Exactly like you say, the, uh, fortunately, uh, this uh, case remained the only one. Fortunately, the people uh, who had been uh, in quarantine have not developed any symptom. Um, so uh, let's say this emergency case is over. In the meantime, we had already been, and now uh, we had already been when the case occurred for a week, and now we're more than, more than two weeks in a, in a situation in ESOC where there are very few people, they, are, they work completely isolated. So um, I think mm-hmm. ESOC now from a, a COVID-19 infection case is one of the safest places you can find in Germany. Um, having said that, we cannot exclude that further cases uh, will occur because, of course, then people have also life outside and they get exposed uh, to other people in their private life. But we are in a situation now that if one of these cases occurs, um, we can treat it in isolation. This person, we can take care of this person, but there will be basically uh, very little chance that we have to quarantine uh, other people around. So um, back to your question, we are out of this uh, first emergency. We are very glad that the emergency did not uh, develop into a cascade of emergencies. And we are in a very stable situation. For this reason, we immediately, uh, when we shut down the the science, we had established criteria for the restart. And uh, we have verified this criteria on uh, Thursday, Friday last week. And uh, as of uh, the weekend, we have started gradually uh, to bring the missions back into their normal status. It takes some time. Uh, The first one that started is Solar Orbiter because we're still in a manual mode of operation that's easier to restart. And then gradually we will go on with Cluster, then Mars Express, and Mm -hmm. then ExoMars. So interestingly, at ISAC, we have a a lot of infrastructure on site as well. 
Um, we had planned for uh, the case where we, where we would have to evacuate the site, uh, but that was when we designed these plans, it was because we thought we would have a bushfire flooding or something. We didn't expect to be driven out of our site for, for a pandemic. Um, and our plans actually, uh, when it broke out early March, we had one day where we actually sent everybody home to test our plans. Um, and uh, in fact, really two days later, we had to actually apply it. It was quite interesting. And then we reduced gradually the number of people we needed on site to come and to actually just maintain the hardware. So uh, we have, at the beginning, we had still four or five people coming every day to serve the other 300, which have to actually work with that infrastructure. In the meantime, now we are down to one person coming two mornings per week. But now we're actually in a, in a very stable situation uh, where we have uh, you know, minimal access to the site. Uh, the people do that safely um, and everybody else is confined at home and, and working from home. Yeah, it is amazing how quickly work has changed for so many people in ESA and all around the world. Um, one thing I'm interested in is the Bepi Colombo flyby that's coming up. So Bepi Colombo was launched in 2018 and it's on its way to Mercury at the centre of the solar system, yet it's making its way back to Earth counterintuitively. So Paolo, maybe you could tell us a bit about BepiColombo and what this flyby means and how the pandemic measures will affect this really critical maneuver. Uh, yes, uh, BepiColombo is coming back to Earth, uh, whether we want it or not. It's not something we can postpone and say, well, no, we are in a difficult situation. Let's do it next month. No, it's coming back. It's flying back very rapidly to Earth. It will fly by Earth um, on the 10th of April at uh, 6.30 in the morning, more or less. That will be the closest approach to Earth, whether we like it or not. Now, this is a critical operation. Uh, there's a number of things that we have to do with the spacecraft. Uh, uh, first of all, checking and uh, correcting the trajectory. This was done, by the way. We're navigating so precisely that uh, yesterday we got the confirmation that we don't need any more trajectory correction. This is good, very good, because it leaves the spacecraft alone for a while. Um, there's a number of activities in configuring the spacecraft, the communications and various other subsystems so that it can, uh, um, let's say, operate in the proximity of the Earth. The spacecraft is not designed uh, uh, for that. And uh, the geometry of the flyby is, uh, is very different from flying very far from the Earth. So we had to do that as well. And on top of that, and Marcus will probably explain uh, better, we are taking this opportunity uh, of being close to the Earth uh, to operate some of the instruments on board, the scientific instruments, because it's a unique opportunity. When you fly for, for years in the empty of space, you have no target to point your instrument at, and, uh, and they take some measurements, calibration, tests, and so on. So the, the proximity of the Earth is a unique opportunity. Because of this, um, we can't. We are not anymore in a say routine operation for Bepi Colombo, which is normally quiet. We have to send people on site uh, first for the preparation, um, like uh, preparing the the, the maneuvers, uh, preparing the configuration of the spacecraft, and also for the say uh, 24, 36 hours around the closest approach. There we want to have people permanently on site, because if something goes wrong there, we want to be able to intervene rapidly. Um, what we've done is, uh, okay, in these days, our team has been in and out, maybe not every day, but uh, several times per week, 
uh, to prepare the the flyby since uh, um, basically the, the past night um, all the commands for the for all the operations have been uplinked to the spacecraft so in principle if nothing goes wrong uh, we could just sit and watch uh, between now and after the flyby so that's a very very good situation because we know everything's pre-programmed for the various operations mm, and uh, uh, as i mentioned before very close to the flyby we will get uh, uh, between two and four people um, permanently in the in the center between more or less the morning of the 9th of April and uh, the afternoon of the 10th of April so that we are ready in that uh, in in the most critical hours in case uh, the pre-programmed operations don't work properly to interact with the spacecraft and uh, and make sure that this activity is over uh, safely that was the mission where we were terrified that something would uh, go wrong or we wouldn't be able to actually bring people on site to control it because uh, baby colombo as you know is uh, on its way to mercury we we want to study mercury we want to bring the spacecraft in orbit to mercury mercury is a relatively small planet so if you arrive with your spacecraft too fast you're just going to zoom by so we need to actually decelerate that spacecraft and that's part of what these uh, flybys are Um, and it's a journey to get to that. It's over six years to get there, uh, something like nine flybys in total of different planets to decelerate the spacecraft. Um, and so uh, this, the first one, you know, the, the, the worst case scenario, if you have a wild imagination, uh, if nobody would have controlled that spacecraft coming back to Earth, it could have just swing around Earth and, and landed in the nowhere emptiness of, of our solar system. So that was my nightmare. Uh, now, as, as Paolo described, the team had already controlled that spacecraft so well that uh, minimal corrections were needed. And so the last ones were done, uh, now checked, and uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, everything will go well and that spacecraft will just take the, the swing it needs to take around Earth and, um, and decelerate a little bit on its way. Um, and yes, as, as uh, Paolo mentioned, that because we're near to Earth uh, and because our scientists are all uh, impatient people and don't want to wait until we're at Mercury to, to do science, uh, they're going to switch on a number of the instruments that uh, you can use both for scientific purposes around Earth, um, but also to calibrate uh, to calibrate them. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity there that, uh, that it's great that we, uh, we can use it now. Yeah, it's fascinating because the flybys are a great tool to use the gravity in the solar system as kind of free fuel to speed up or slow down or change direction without really using much of the onboard fuel. And so with less fuel needed, they can carry more scientific instruments. So it's a really nice example, I think, of how operations works. Yes. Uh, in fact, um, I, I think if I'm not mistaken... Uh, we, in this case with the Earth, uh, Marcus said correctly, we are decelerating. We have to slow down the spacecraft so that it falls to Mercury and it arrives there eventually with the right velocity. Um, we are losing about a velocity of about four kilometers per second. So this is a braking maneuver, uh, which is very, very strong. In order to do a maneuver like this with uh, uh, fuel on board and with the, with the engines that we have on board, we would probably have to load a couple of tons of, uh, of fuel. Um, thanks to the Earth and thanks to this maneuver, we can save that weight, that mass, which, of course, in space, uh, mass is a, is a very precious resource. Yeah, it's great. It's a great, um, a great example. Yeah, that's great. I think that's all of, all of the questions I had. Do you 
have anything else that you wanted to add or anything you wanted anything else to ask each other? No, not from my side. And uh, using the opportunity to greet Paolo in his in his cave from from one cave to the next. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. Thanks, Marcus. I think uh, from my side also nothing to add. Uh, I I hope we're all uh, now after after this sort of initial crisis. I'm I'm confident we are in a stable situation. I hope we don't have to face uh, similar situations. I think the likelihood now is not very high, and I I I'm confident that before Easter we're going to be back into a completely normal uh, status. All our signs will be produced, and. Uh, Marcus' heart can start beating again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I remember actually that Paolo and I were uh, end of February when when the crisis just had reached Europe. We were both sitting for two days in a, in a meeting remotely uh, to evaluate some of the missions for extensions. Um, and I think uh, it was a bizarre feeling because it, it started to impact us. We started to actually um, reduce the travel of our people, uh, but we hadn't confined uh, each other. And if I look back, it's only a month since uh, since we had uh, that review and we're sitting there two days together. And I don't think that any of us um, expected the world to be what it is now, two weeks later, no, not two weeks, four weeks later. Right? Uh, so strange times in which we live, but uh, impressive that we managed to actually continue to uh, to operate uh, missions across the the solar system and uh, and get science out of it. Yes, this is uh, uh, absolutely correct, Marcus. And I I must say I I'm very grateful to the to our teams who not only found very quickly ways from uh, to to continue doing the work and the operations mostly from remote. But also some of them uh, constantly uh, keep an eye on our satellites. They go to our control center. They work on shift. Uh, they work in a more complicated uh, situation because in order to protect their health and the mission, they have uh, uh, rules to satisfy, as I said, social distancing, disinfecting, protection. So it's a difficult situation. I'm very grateful to these people that uh, they take it with the usual professionalism but also passion and it's only thanks to these people that we can uh, we can really achieve what we are achieving today thanks for listening to ESA explores find out all the latest about what's going on at ESA mission control via at ESA operations on twitter or visit the website www.esa.int forward slash operations and for the latest info on Bepi Colombo's upcoming flyby on the 10th of April, you can also follow at Bepi Colombo on Twitter or check out the ESA website for all of the latest. Keep safe. See you next time. Dzięki i do usłyszenia. Tymczasem. <laughs>